And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, December 28th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, what the just-out Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey results are saying. Plus, Happy New Year, and here's a pay cut of 25%. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Biden administration is calling on agencies to step up their use of artificial intelligence tools in the year ahead. Much of that work will fall upon a relatively new addition to most agencies, their chief data officers. Most CDOs say their agencies are already using some AI tools, but see a long road ahead to make the kind of change the White House expects. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. And Jory, you've been following the data developments, the artificial intelligence developments, which in many ways are data developments. And let's begin with AI. How many agencies are already using AI, or is it all of them at this point? Well, certainly not all of them, but it is definitely in place at a number of agencies right now. We recently got some figures on this from the Government Accountability Office. They recently looked far and wide across all corners of the federal government, and they found about 1,200 use cases across agencies. Now, most of those are aspirational. About 16% of them they found are actually being implemented at some agencies and some of the agencies you might expect, places like NASA, places that are more science-oriented and have a federal R&D budget to kick the tires on these kinds of AI resources. You know, we had another way to look at this because CDOs are going to be in the driver's seat for a lot of this work uh, in the year ahead. We saw in a recent survey from the Data Foundation and Deloitte that more than half of federal CDOs say at their specific agencies they are today using AI tools. And that's a big jump from that same survey back in 2022 when about half of CDOs said they had no responsibility for AI tools. For a closer look at this, we heard recently from Rob King, who's the CDO over at the Energy Department, one of those techier agencies that is working with AI. He says that... CDOs across the government are recognizing their emerging role in this space and that uh, data is going to be the foundation for AI success. Data can be that strategic enabler, and especially on the onset uh, of the emergence of AI, it's even more of an accelerator in terms of that strategic change agent. Well, he's right, because an AI algorithm doesn't do anything without data. It's like saying, you know, gas is the enabler of automobiles. I should say electricity nowadays, to be politically correct. And what do the CDOs themselves, these chief data officers, anticipate as their big challenges? Well, they have uh, some pretty common challenges here. About 40 percent of respondents said that they actually feel successful today in implementing their agency mission. A lot of that has to do with, I guess, some clarity about that mission, knowing specifically what they're being tasked to do and and how that's going to further the mission of their agencies. And they are pretty clear that they are the people in the the wheelhouse of getting this AI stuff done because they said that about 90% of CDOs who took this survey, they said that their data infrastructure is only a little or somewhat mature. And that's not good to your point about AI. That's like building the fastest bullet train and not laying a mile of track. You know, the data is the people, is the resource, the lifeblood of these AI tools. And so you really got to get that right before you get the AI implemented. Now, there is a chief data officers council. What are they doing to kind of help out here? 
Well, they recognize, King recognizes that uh, this is the kind of thing where they can work together government-wide and they have these common issues, so why not work on common problems? And that's not just some idle talk here. King is going to be part of the CDO Council leadership for the year ahead. He will be the vice chairman and Kirsten Dalbo, who's the CDO over at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, she will be the new chairwoman of that council. And so uh, having looked at this survey, they recognize where the kind of the pain points are, where they need to get work done and ultimately make uh, CDOs feel like they have the tools and the resources to uh, make change in this space and just across all of their agency priority areas. And I've heard it said a million times, I'm sure you have, that in this age of AI, they need a more savvy workforce in generally because the people on the line, the people doing the missions, carrying out the tasks, they're the ones that are going to be affected by AI. And often they're the ones that know the best use case to improve things with AI. So is workforce data savviness part of what you think agencies are thinking about? It definitely is, but it was very insightful to hear what King had to say about this, that agencies, by and large, they have been staffing up on the higher level of things that agencies have been bringing in CDOs, they've been bringing in data scientists, people who have PhDs and really are the subject matter experts in this space. But what agencies haven't done such a good job on is bringing in more of the rank-and-file data people, people who are data stewards or data engineers uh, who ultimately are a lot of the people who are creating the data in the first place. Uh, and King says that's a, a weak point government-wide that there's going to be some, there needs to be some added focus on. To be successful, you should resource three to five data engineers for every one data scientist to optimize the data wrangling and the data positioning to ensure data scientists can be effective. And we're seeing some you know, negative impacts by not making those investments in other data practitioner roles, namely the steward and engineer roles. And so we need to get back and start looking at what does it mean to be a data steward and what are the key skill sets? And that's Rob King. He's the CDO of the Energy Department. And what do CDOs say about their own jobs? Well, another interesting insight from this survey is that uh, it's really unclear and it's not entirely consistent who CDOs report to across government. That changes considerably depending on what agency you're talking about. About roughly a third of respondents said that they report to their chief information officer. There's a lot of overlap when you think about it with their two responsibilities. But there was a 37% write-in option here. So that means that it's not the CIO, it's not the uh, agency head, it's kind of a, a an other, you know, fill-in-the-blank type option there. And so uh, it's really not consistent who these people report to, but uh, the, the work re- pretty much remains the same. And that's not necessarily a bad thing from the people who are working on the survey. They said that, you know, they want agencies to have this discretion to, you know, fit their unique missions here. Um, but that was a, an interesting point of contention. Also, this is just a big area of responsibility uh, for a relatively new position across government. You know, we saw only in the past five years this be a position that's mandated across each agency. So they are still very much the new kids on the block. Uh, But the people actually in the CDO roles are not so new. The vast majority of them have 10 or more years of experience in the federal government. So new to this role, but not new to government. 
All right. So if you take a CDO job, the first thing to ask is, who am I going to report to? And that'll give you some idea of where the agency places the value that determines where they put it in the org chart. Right, right. And get back to challenges here. A lot of these CDO shops, you know, the staffing is in the single digits. So it can be a little lonely at those CDO shops. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of his data coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, Happy New Year, and here's a 25% pay cut. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. A special retention pay authority the Justice Department used to retain certain Bureau of Prisons employees expires in a few days. This affects employees of the Federal Correctional Institution Thompson in Illinois. The result? A Christmas time pay cut of 25% for correctional officers and other employees. For more of what's going on, we turn to the president of the American Federation of Government Employees Local 4070, John Zumker. Mr. Zumker, good to have you with us. Good to talk to you today. Tell us exactly what's going on. A pay cut of 25%. This is taking you back to basically the pay you had uh, before this year-long special retention authority started? Yeah, so Thompson uh, used to be a state facility, and it was bought out by the Obama administration. And uh, Senator Durbin changed it into a, a federal prison. And the reason it got changed is the state of Illinois could not staff officers at the prison. The federal government thought that he could do a better job, and they failed. So we worked with Senator Durbin, Representative Busto, Senator Duckworth, and we got a retention bonus to retain the staff at Thompson. And, you know, we had that now for two years. It's something that the director of Bureau of Prisons can extend. It doesn't expire. It's something that she has to remove. And she chose to remove it. Now, we've lost 203 staff over the last two years. We changed our mission from a high-security prison to a low-security prison, which knocked our numbers down. But we are currently, right now, under this new mission, short 71 officers. We're authorized to have 471. We currently have 400, with another 15 leaving. That puts us right now at 84%. We'll be below 80 at the end of, at the end of January. Um, so that's... A big concern to us, you know, we're fighting to keep this pay because we want to keep the retention here at Thompson. We want to keep the officers here at Thompson, and we want to keep this prison open. And just a little bit of background, Thompson has been a pretty tough facility, hasn't it? Yeah, so they we used to be called a special management unit, which they took all the bad actors, which were very disruptive inmates, and put them all at one location. And that was at Thompson, Illinois, in the special management unit. So that got shut down um, last year. And we got converted into a low-security prison. Now, keep in mind, we're a maximum security lockdown prison, and they're trying to convert it into a low-security prison. We don't have programming space. Um, that's the one thing that we're trying to fight with this director is to make this a program-friendly place. And she's fighting us. She's not giving us the tools that we need to be successful. And then she cut our retention bonus. So it, it just doesn't make any sense why she did that. We've reached out to her office. She refuses to respond to us. We reached out to her director. He refuses to respond to us. And the National Union has also reached out, and they have not got a response on this either. So it, it doesn't make sense. You know, we just want to know why. If we keep losing staff over and over and over again, we've never had full, been fully staffed, and we're struggling to retain staff. Your solution to the problem is to cut the pay by 25% and add a 1,000 new inmates. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's where we're trying to get the politicians behind us to say, hey, Senator Durbin, you brought this prison to Illinois, and you're letting 
this director shut this place down. What I mean by shut it down, if you don't have staff, you can't keep this place open. By the way, the person we're speaking about is Colette Peters, who was appointed by President Biden to take over. I think she came in from Oregon and has been on the show, actually, some months back. Let me ask you this. During the period that this pay bonus was in place, did that affect the turnover? Did that keep people actually employed there? Yeah, it kept people here. It got people to transfer to Thompson because they wanted the the higher pay. And, you know, some of the reasons we got the higher pay is we're a remote location. We're in the middle of nowhere. The housing cost is, you know, it's high in this area rather than the surrounding areas. And the child care, there isn't child care around here. So those are like some of the factors that we face. And then this is a hard to fill location from the state of Illinois to the federal government. So those are the reasons why we need that. Those are all fall under OPM's criteria for that. And now we're at 84% and we're going to drop below 80 and she wants to cut this. And I'll tell you this, we had Representative Warrenson, Illinois District 17, come to Thompson a couple weeks ago. The warden at Thompson told him, we need to keep this pay in place. Otherwise we will lose a lot of staff. The HR manager, same thing. We need to keep this retention pay in place or we will lose staff. The director is ignoring the boots on the ground and making a decision that she's just I don't know why it doesn't make any sense why she would do this. Like the data clearly shows we need it. If you look at the long term, you know, which when we fought for the retention, they said, hey, we like to look at a two year graph. Well, we're looking at the data for two years and we lost 203 staff. The graph chart shows that we're heading you know, straight down. Sure. And their solution is to cut the pay. We're speaking with John Zumker. He's president of AFGE Local 4070, which represents employees of the Thompson, Illinois facility of the Bureau of Prisons. And you mentioned it's pretty remote. Are conditions at least settled down with respect to, you know, the bad guys that have been removed from there permanently? Is it at least a safer situation than it was? It's a new prison. We're the newest federal prison in the Bureau right now. So we're dealing with a lot of issues. The number one issue is we don't have programming space. You know, with this new warden, we have a new leadership in. Uh, they, re- they replaced the whole leadership team, brought new leadership in. The new leadership is actually working well with us, is working with the staff, and trying to get programs here. That's the biggest fight is we want to get programs. And when I say programs is we want to keep the inmates busy. We want to we want to keep them in programs. Like we created a welding program to give them skills so hopefully they don't come back when they get out. That's sure. the goal with the programming that we're trying to fight. But we're a maximum security prison, and they're trying to make it into a programming spot. So we need to kind of redo a lot of things. But a great example, they ordered trailers to come into the prison, but they didn't measure the trailers that the central office did. Didn't measure it as programming trailers like a classroom. And now we they can't fit in the prison. They'd have to get a helicopter to bring the uh, trailers in. Uh, so they canceled <laughs> it. So we don't have building space for these new inmates coming in. And that's, again, a problem that we're raising because, again, it's an issue. We're not Our job is not to warehouse these inmates. Our job is to program them. And... That's what we're doing right now under Director Peters is just warehousing inmates here at Thompson. Yeah, where's Johnny Cash when you really need him, I guess, these days? And tell me, (laughs) the conditions there then are are boring, and I guess that can contribute to unrest or to trouble if inmates don't have something to do then, sounds like. Yeah, a great example is we had four staff go to the hospital because of drug exposure in the last uh, 40 days. Four staff were sent to the outside hospital for drug exposure at Thompson. And again, I contribute that to is programming. We want to keep, I mean, you're going to have people that will do bad things. You're not going to stop that. But if we can keep people busy, incentivize them not to do dumb things, 
I think that will help out. But we need the support from the director on this. And getting back to the pay issue, just give us an average of what the pay was with the bonus and what it will drop to for the, you know, on the average employee there. Uh, the average employee will take about a $16,000 pay cut. And the reason that is important is the factories pay more in the local area than it does to work in a federal prison. The state of Illinois pays more than it does to work in a federal prison. So ask yourself, why would you want to come work at Thompson when you can make more in a factory with one year in than you do right now at Thompson with the retention in place? And keep in mind these numbers that I'm giving you, the 71 short, these are all with the retention in place. December 31st is when she's ordering it to be removed. And I want to be very clear, it does not expire. She has lied to Congress and said our retention bonus expires. It does not expire. The policy is very clear. She has to request to remove it. So it's, it's something that she's requesting through DOJ to OPM to remove. But that's important to know that these numbers that we're talking about are pre-removing the retention. And once they remove it, we will have an exodus. Sure. And so at this point, then, it's kind of a fait accompli unless something happens at the last minute. Yes, and that's that's why we reached out. Um, we've had the support from the National Fraternal Order of Police. They put out support on that. We're working with the AFL-CIO. We're calling on Senator Durbin to fix this problem. He brought this to Thompson. This is supposed to be the most union-friendly administration. We haven't seen it. We're getting attacked on a daily basis. We've reached out to the White House. We've reached out to the Labor Secretary and asking them, you're allowing this appointed director to do this. Fix it. All right. We will reach out to that director also from our standpoint. In the meantime, John Zumker is president of AFGE Local 4070, which represents employees of the Thompson, Illinois facility of the Bureau of Prisons. Thanks so much for joining me and good luck in the new year. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what contractors should do now about DOD's new cybersecurity proposed rule. But first, what the just-out Federal Employee Viewpoint survey results are saying. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, FEVS scores, came out just before Christmas, and results in general seem to be pointed in the right direction. For some early analysis, we turn to the partner and director of government and public affairs at Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, Jason Briefel. Jason, good to have you in studio. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Of course, you have followed this stuff very carefully for years now. And what's the big picture? What do the FEVS scores look like for 2023? So the big picture is a good one. The scores are trending upward a little bit, but in a noticeable way after a two-year kind of dip coming out of the heavy, heavy 2020 year of the pandemic. So in the framing of OPM, who issued this report, and in my read of it, you know, in the big picture, that's a good sign. We're going up. So the sense of engagement and the sense that on employees' part that leaders actually lead and so on, those scores are up a tick. Yes. And I think that it's important to parse those out, right? You know, engagement is up a point overall to 72. And in the leader's lead, there's some indices that break that down. Is that the political leaders or the leaders on high? Is that your direct supervisor? And one of the great things about this report is it shows those over time. And and I was happy to see, and I think it's notable that the supervisor score, you know, has been about 80% consistently across time. And as we know, your frontline supervisor, that's where the rubber meets the road with the workforce. 
Right. That'll make you leave or stay much more readily than almost anything else going on. Absolutely. But I juxtapose that to the leader's lead category where, you know, those can be perceived and they are historically, this is a question in the survey where it's unclear. Are they talking about the secretary in the front office or the SESers nearby the front office, but still maybe the career folks. Those scores are about 20 points lower. You know, they went up two points to 61, but there's a big difference there. And I think that that's important area for agencies to keep in investing in, paying attention to. The political leadership and how it is perceived. Unclear if it's political or career, but it's those higher level leaders. What's the tone that they're setting in the organization? You know, what leadership values are they articulating and guiding the workforce, hopefully, with? It's really hard to attribute a given factor to the scores. I mean, you yes. can say, well, they're getting a 5.2% pay raise, but that wasn't extant at the time the survey was taken. Right. And it's important to realize when the survey was taken in the spring of this year, this is when agencies were getting increased that they were going to be pushed to come back into the office a little bit more that on the, the eve of an OMB memo focused on organizational health and performance. But it was a government-wide census, so they sent it to everybody, and 39% of the workforce responded. So decent, not great, but a decent population. And that was something that I found interesting, Tom, looking at the data here. The people who responded to the survey tend to be higher graded and older than your average federal workforce. So as I look at the data, I think it's important to realize that we're undersampled, we're underrepresenting the Gen Y and the Gen Z population, and that's where our gap is in the workforce. And they have different attitudes toward work, different attitudes toward supervision, you might even say. Yeah. Which leads to the question about whether people perceive that their agency leadership will do anything with the scores they get, agency by agency. So across the board, that one is not really good. That's one of the very lowest scores in the survey in the government-wide data. This is question 47. Only 48% of respondents think that the survey will be used to make their agency a better place to work. So again, you have this disconnect. If you're going to survey your workforce about this stuff, you have got to put it into action and show them fast that you're doing something about this. And, you know, I've been talking and doing stuff around this for 11 years now. And that theme has been the constant theme. And hopefully agencies are getting better at that. And they really have no excuse if they're not because OPM is getting much better at putting this data in their hands faster. Sure. It's like grandma asking if you're hungry and you say yes, but she doesn't have anything to feed you. So it was just a matter of curiosity. Right. That doesn't sit too well with people. Right. And again, I think the data is there. I think that as we go forward into the future – it's wonderful to have the dashboard that OPM presents where you can dig in and into the data and then look what's going on there, what's going on at my agency, what's going on at similar agencies. And hopefully we get to a place in the future in the federal government where this isn't a once-a-year Christmas present from OPM. You know, It's more of a normal course of business. We're using this data to manage our workforce all the time. We're speaking with Jason Briefel. He's a partner and director of government and public affairs at the law firm Shaw, Bransford & Roth. And people love to see which agencies are doing great, which ones are doing terrible. And there was a bad slippage in one very large agency, wasn't there? There was. You know, the Social Security Administration continues its fallout. You know, this is a combination of, I think, a lot of factors. Their workload, the nature of their work, how far they are able to get in modernization initiatives there. 
And then they've had an acting leader for you know most of the Obama administration, most of this administration, obviously. President and they didn't Biden like the leader they had right. during the Trump administration, right. rightly or wrongly. Biden did not like the commissioner that was in from the Trump administration and somewhat controversially fired that official. But I guess good news coming. The Senate finally confirmed Martin O'Malley to lead that agency. And I know he knows that he has a full plate to tackle, but uh, has experience as an as an operator and administrator that hopefully can help focus on the critical you know needs and the sure. workforce needs of that agency. Former Maryland governor, and you know at the tiny agencies, I think the Chemical Safety Board shot up twenty three percent. There's only a few people at that agency, but we see this year after year. Sometimes some tiny obscure agency, the Marine Mammal Commission, did really well a couple of years ago, simply because of sometimes new leadership. So I don't know what happened there, but I definitely saw that Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, something along those lines. I'm sorry to folks who work there if I butchered your agency title. And I think you're right, Tom. Stuff can happen fast. You can drop out the bottom. You can rise to the top. And I think that that is a positive lesson for agencies listening out there. You know, the scores are not your destiny. The scores are giving you information about what's happening so you can go to where you want to go. And hopefully they're used as a tool for improvement. And again, as I read into these, I think this should always be the start of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. Now, the survey itself was a little bit different. They're always tweaking it, and there's some new questions, and it's hard to be comparable sometimes from one year to the other. What did you find this year? So... I think that it's good that you have these core set of questions, but that OPM is also looking all the time. What are trends? What are key areas that we need to hone in on? And they may do that for various reasons. So obviously, there's a lot of focus around telework, remote work, things like that. So OPM tightened up the phrasing, apparently, that they used in some of their questions so we could parse, are we talking about telework here? Are we talking about a remote worker? And so that helps get us more granular data about what's happening with those people. And something that I think is really interesting and often gets lost in the debate about federal telework, but it's clear as day in the survey, in 2022, 20% of people in this year, 21% of folks said that they don't telework at all. These are law enforcement people, people at the border, people in uh, security, other types of security roles, uh, maybe on a military base. So it's really important to remember that... You know, there's different populations of employees who have different experiences. You know, I look at that against HHS had a great participation rate. Well, other than the folks in a lab, I'm going to guess that most HHS employees are at their desk all the time or a desk somewhere. And I think that that's very different than, say, a Border Patrol or uh, a Bureau of Prisons officer who might not even have a computer. They might just have an agency email account that they have to get to periodically. But that's not really part of the core of their job. Right. A lot of variables depending on the job. And I would say, too, if scores are up in general and the level of telework that was engendered by the pandemic has not changed that much, even though there's all this push, as you say, to get people back. But I think most agencies have settled at the most three days a week back in the office and scores are going up. That means that some level of widespread and regularized telework might be good for the workforce. I'm making a correlation here, but, you know, this is settled in now. Yeah, I think it's settled in. I think, you know, if you look nationally at what's going on in this space, about a 50% is the benchmark that in professional organizations we're heading to. And, 
You think about it, real estate's expensive. If you're not using it all, you can shed it, and then you can invest in training and development of your workforce, which is another one of those areas that the survey added some new questions around in 2022, and we're starting to see data in. And it was interesting that that was another one of those where it ranked on the lower side of agencies getting the training investment that they need to successfully do their job. Right. So signal to agencies, we know you always cut back on training and development, but it's never a good idea. No, I don't think so. And and I think in an area where we're constantly confronting new technologies to enable a learning mindset, workforce resiliency, again, you know, some, some I'm not sure if these are new questions or if they just tagged them to the OMB memo, but around organizational health and performance. I found it really interesting that some uh, measures around resilience, innovation, and customer responsiveness were highlighted, but you see a dichotomy here. And, you know, I often see these dichotomies in this data. You look at some of the resilience measures uh, for change management. Are employees approaching change and is management helping them approach change? Receive pretty low scores, 57% and 54%. Whereas if you ask employees, you know, are they or their managers engendering an innovation mindset, the scores were better, you know, between 66 and 58 percent. So you're always like, what exactly is going on there? And I think if you look at it in the grand scheme of the survey, it's not really helpful. This is where digging into your particular agency or office is really helpful. And then that comes back to the difference between those supervisors and those leaders lead people, political leaders or your executives. Are we helping people put the tools on the deck to really do what they need to do? All right. So to agency managers and leaders then look at this as an assignment and not as a report card alone. Absolutely, Tom. Jason Briefel is a partner and director of government and public affairs at Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what contractors should do now about DOD's new cybersecurity proposed rule. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Defense contractors are parsing out a nearly 250-page proposed rule. It landed sort of like a lump of coal on Christmas Eve. It's all about a program known as the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC. At the least, you should read the proposal and prepare comments. For more, we turn to procurement attorney Eric Crucius, a partner at Holland and Knight. And Eric, good to have you in studio. Your copy is only about 80 pages because you printed in three columns. That's right. You know, I always try for efficiency when I'm moving around. <laughs> right, because you have the full version out there and it completely fills a accordion folder and well, let's begin at the beginning. What should contractors be doing now with this thing? We've said for a long time that contractors should be paying attention to what they know, CMMC, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, as you said, because this is coming. And I think this is an important step that the Department of Defense did by issuing the proposed rule. They expect the final rule to be out sometime next year. And what it does is it really makes contractors um, certify that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. There are already requirements uh, for various FAR and DFARS clauses that require contractors to protect uh, different kinds of information. What CMMC does is is give 
DOD assurance that those contractors are actually doing that through a self-certification uh, or a third-party certification. Now, the CMMC was first proposed four years or five years ago, and does the new rule pretty much mirror the way it was laid out originally, or are there some significant changes in what they're actually proposing for the CMMC 2.0, let's put it that way? Let me give you a great lawyer answer and say both. <laughs> so some of it is, is, is the same and some of it's different. So for level one, which is for the protection of federal contract information, that's no longer going to be a third-party certification. That's now a self-certification. And that's great because it's less expensive. It's more flexible for small businesses. But it also opens up potential False Claims Act liability for those small businesses because they're self-certifying to something instead of getting a third party to bless it, essentially. But they do have to have those controls in place. That's right. That hasn't changed. And the controls have been narrowed down across all the levels a little bit to take out some DOD-specific controls that were just germane to the CMMC program. Now it's really all stuff that contractors already have to do. And when you talk about level two, that mostly remains a third-party certification. So when they released kind of CMMC 2.0 and announced that they were going to go through this rulemaking process, they said, well, level two is going to be a split level with some folks getting a self-certification, some folks getting a third-party certification. But they they largely predict that most contractors will need and want to get a third-party certification. They put the numbers as uh, more than 76,000 defense contractors getting a third-party certification under level two and just 4,000 uh, getting a self-certification. I think that's pretty accurate. I would even say it's maybe weighted even should be weighted even more and heavily of third-party certs because if you're a contractor with controlled and classified information, you're going to want to get that third-party certification because you don't know what the next contract is going to require. Right. So this apparatus of having third-party assessors that would report back to some CMMC office in the sky, <laughs> that that's still in place. That's right. There's still the accreditation body. It's a nonprofit that was set up for the purpose of kind of laying out the ground rules, training the assessors, putting coursework out, kind of blessing the third-party assessment organizations that are going to do the assessments, all that stuff. And they kind of sit in between the Department of Defense and the contractors because DOD has essentially said in their rulemaking, we don't have the capacity to ramp up like this, but you know we hope that it's some third party will. And the uh, cyber accreditation body has done a good job of, of ramping up. They've added a lot of third-party assessors. They've added a lot of folks in other categories. You know, it's a little bit of a slower go, I think, than some would like, but it just reflects the nature of how complicated this is. And nobody has to be assessed yet. You know, that's going to come sometime next year. So the hope is that as as more companies become aware and want to get assessed, there will be a similar increase in, in those who are capable of getting those assessments done. So in other words, DOD becomes almost like a occupant of a building. The contractors are the builders, and these third-party assessors are like the building inspectors. That's right. That's exactly right. Because the DOD still has to be the architect also. They, they're the ones that say, this is, these are the rules, this is what you have to do, and that accreditation body is making sure that folks are doing it. We're speaking with attorney Eric Crucius. He's a partner at Holland & Knight. What do you feel is commentable about this? I mean, it doesn't sound like there's anything that should surprise a contractor. Even I'm surprised it took 250 pages to say what we just said in about 1,000 words. <laughs> so is there anything controversial in your view? I wouldn't say there's controversial, but there are some things to think about. Uh, one is how are international companies going to kind of comply with this? Um, a lot of DOD supply chain is overseas. Whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's still the fact of the matter. And there's, it's a complicating factor to try to get those assessors to, to do assessments overseas. There are some countries that wouldn't allow that. Um, so 
you know, that that kind of is an open question in this proposed rule, but there's a promise of a ramp up. Another is a lot of contractors, especially smaller ones, are using third parties to host their information or manage their services, manage their security. You know, how those are going to be treated. They did lay out for cloud service providers um, the standards, but for those managed service providers that do more than a cloud service provider, it's not entirely clear what they need to do. Will they need a CMMC Level 2 assessment? That's possible based on the reading of this. But I think that has to be clarified a little bit. So that's that's certainly something that could be open for comment. And, of course, I think a lot of folks are going to want to comment on the cost of this. This is not an inexpensive endeavor. But DOD said over and over again in this rulemaking, hey, these are things you already have to do so that we're not putting a new requirement on you. We're just putting a new verification of that requirement on you. But even so, it's still very expensive. And I think a lot of folks are going to want to comment on that, though I think DOD did a much better job this time around kind of understanding that cost and explaining that cost out in gruesome detail, actually, sure. through the rulemaking. And there's going to be a lot of different situations technically. I mean, if you were dealing with a cloud supplier, a cloud commercial cloud computing supplier, they're supplying IT in the first place and whatever controls they have inside their firewalls and their clouds, sometimes that's proprietary and it's going to be hard to get. That's different if you're a supplier of castings for landing gear and you might be a you know, a subcontractor or even a prime in some cases, and your information systems to operate your foundry and to take in the orders, et cetera, and buy your metal. That's a whole different setup. That's a little bit simpler than dealing with, say, a cloud. Right. It's it's interesting because I think, you know, I've talked to numerous companies about this and numerous companies who have tried to comply with the DFARS clause that's out there already, 252-204-7012, and each one presents a different problem because nobody has set up their system the same way. Each industry is completely different. Um, so what they're trying to do is come out with something that is neutral to all those different industries, and that's something that can be implemented across numerous industries. Whether they su- have succeeded or not remains to be seen, but I could tell you that it is there are complications when implementing even just the controls as they are now um, because companies have these bespoke systems, and the different industries require different things. So hopefully as time goes on, there'll be more guidance that's out there and more information that's out there from the Department of Defense and others that can help those companies through those problems because one of the big problems are these small businesses that do some business with the Department of Defense, but DOD obviously doesn't want them to run away because of this new requirement. So kind of engaging with those small businesses and ensuring that they have the tools necessary to get compliant and get a certification without breaking the bank is going to be of paramount importance over the next year or two. And cybersecurity has always been a matter of balancing between compliance and checkoff, which this is all about, and actual cybersecurity, which is protecting the data and the secrets of the Defense Department. Somewhere in there, do you get the sense that their ultimate goal is to make sure that China doesn't steal the plans from the next F-35? Absolutely. Because <laughs> I think you know, DOD's position for years now has been that was way too easy <laughs> for them to do that. And I get DOD's position here. I mean, I understand that they are, do business with these contractors, they trust this information to them. They don't want this information to show up overseas in China or another country. Um, it just has to be balanced with kind of narrowly tailoring to what is absolutely required to do that. And on the other hand, contractors have an incentive to have good cybersecurity. They don't want the proprietary information leaking out too. So hopefully this will spur on those who are somewhat reluctant to do so um, to actually engage in good cybersecurity and protect their own information. Because with cybersecurity breaches, they're increasing exponentially. You know, I deal with those all the time. And uh, it costs a lot more to to deal with a breach than to prevent one. 
And once this rule is finalized after the comments, people have 60 days, I guess, and it becomes a rule, becomes a DFAR situation. Right. Do you feel that this will engender a lot more compliance activity on contractors, or will it be one time around, you're good to go? I think there'll be a lot more compliance. And this these certifications last for three years. Um, so what you'll have happen is this continuous cycle of contractors needing to get a third-party certification. And especially in the beginning, that's going to be difficult because there'll be some early leaders who get a certification early on. There'll be some who are wait a little bit longer because they don't have to. And they'll be competing for that same time with the certified third-party assessment organization. So those C-3PO's are going to be especially busy, I'd say, the first five years or so as companies are ramping up for the first time and some that are going through the process a second time. Let's start a company. Three CPOs are us. That's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm game. <laughs> All right. Attorney Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland & Knight. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Adopting a zero-trust approach to cybersecurity inside a single federal agency is complicated enough. For U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, it's many times harder. That's because Indo-PACOM needs to adopt zero-trust in a way that works not just for the U.S. military, but for numerous allies and partner nations, and some of them are already behind the curve on cyber. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has details on what the command is doing to meet that challenge. Long before it started the hard work of bringing mission partners into a zero-trust environment, Indo-PACOM's first task was to figure out how to apply the principles to the U.S. military's own requirements for IT networks. Paul Nicholson, the command's deputy CIO, told a recent AFCEA conference the previous approach to network defense wasn't working well. I think there were approximately 57 of those domain-centric networks that we was building and was fighting hard to defend them all and, to some extent, failing miserably, right? You invite in a uh, DISA compliance or you invite in the NSA blue team to come in and you were far from unscathed. You barely survived that and you were almost embarrassed by the things that they found. And so when DOD and White House policy started directing defense components to implement zero trust, Indo-PACOM saw that as a chance to start with a clean sheet of paper on the topic of network defense, pivoting away from that domain-centric approach completely. So then the team, the, the, the J6 team and Dan Wade and the engineers and the team they said, we want to build from scratch the Zero Trust stack in accordance with all the principles and the alliances with, uh, with those Zero Trust uh, uh, requirements. They said it would be more cost effective to start over than it would be to try to go modernize these things that are, one, already used in operations. No one wants to, to inhibit operations or break the as fight. So it gave us the opportunity to begin rapidly uh, learning from CENTCOM, learning from UCOM. It gave us to rapidly start doing experimentation um, with uh, uh, DISA and, and Cyber Command. So we went at this thing from a very collaborative, very, very collaborative approach. Specifically, those collaborators on the Indo-PACOM team include engineers from the National Security Agency and other parts of the intelligence community, and regular discussions with other combatant commands, the Joint Staff and DOD's Chief Data and Artificial Intelligence Office. Officials say the new IT architecture, being built with zero-trust principles baked in from the start, will be called the Indo-PACOM Mission Network. It'll be managed by a new office called the Joint Mission Accelerator Directorate, which declared initial operating capability two weeks ago. 
The new data-centric architecture will also be designed to connect directly with U.S. allies and other partners, the idea being to selectively give them access to only the data they need via information-sharing agreements. And Nicholson says that's where things get even more complex. With the exception of the Five Eyes nations, there are relatively few other countries that are thinking about data security in the same way the U.S. military is. It is a a demand, an extremely high demand across the Indo-PACOM theater to bring the capacity, the cybersecurity capacity of these nations to a place to where we are uh, able to connect and have a good, full, trusted operational network environment. The Five Eyes, a basketball example, the Five Eyes is the starting five. After that, we have no bench, right? In our theater, we have two, New Zealand, Australia. Beyond that, we have a lot of work to do. And so when you start talking about zero trust and the focus on identity and the focus on data and and the marking of the data, there's a lot of guidelines that we have to bring into play with our mission partners. And there's a lot of capacity building that has to be done. One of the biggest early challenges will be around identity and access management, according to Jane Rathbun, the Department of the Navy's CIO. For U.S. users, the identity topic is comparatively straightforward, since the Defense Manpower Data Center already maintains authoritative databases on all military members and DOD civilians. But for our mission partners, we're going to have to figure out what that identity ecosystem is uh, to really make what you've built has been red teamed and looked at and, and meets a lot of the criteria of zero trust. Right thing to do. The other thing that needs to happen is how we're going to make data flow into that uh, environment to be consumed by whatever mission you have going on. And I think those are, again, not challenges of zero trust, but challenges of how to operationalize a zero trust model. Rathbun says many of those problems can likely be overcome by employing sound design concepts as DOD builds out its own zero trust environments and continually sharing those standards and guardrails with allies to encourage as much commonality as possible. Whatever the functional domain is, the things that do need to be common, like identity solutions or at least federators that can work together or source of identity they now understand where that needs to come from. I think we need to take the same approach. You know, we're not going to build their networks potentially for them, but if we can give them standards and guardrails that that, uh, they have to meet in order to connect to the mission partner data source, uh, I think that that is, is, so I think that's really going to be the way Uh, We have to work. Another major hurdle will be making sure data is tagged accurately, incorporating aspects like each data element's origin and other attributes so that the military systems know which partner's information can be shared with and for what purpose. Nicholson says the good news is once a meaningful tagging methodology is in place, it'll also open up huge automation opportunities for Indopaycom. Being able to put all of that relevant data into an environment where you can you can apply a, a significant amount of automation. You know, you've, I've been in some guidance acquisition and targeting shops where they're still using spreadsheets. You are never going to win against a, 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 a very competent adversary if you are doing targeting that way. So that's exciting to say that we now have a framework where we may be able to securely enhance the way we do uh, battle management. A long ways to go, but I'm excited about it because it opens a door where we can do this with our mission partners because they are absolutely necessary to, to have that joint battle management and not just pairing a t- red target to a U.S. firing battery, but a, a red target to a 
partner firing battery. That's the advantage, expanding the scope of what mission target pairing looks like in an automated way. That's exciting. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.